Well, it's a pleasure to be back with you again. And we are going to do part two of the book of, of uh, well, the bridal motif, not the book of Revelation. Actually, when I was um, in seminary or in, in undergraduate school, uh, I attended uh, Grace Community Church uh, in Southern California. And uh, John MacArthur, he preached through, <laughs> he preached through the book of Revelation uh, in one hour. And it was called the Jet Tour Through the Book of Revelation. <laughs> and so uh, I'm about to do that again with uh, part one and part two. Uh, this is a jet tour through the book of Revelation. Um, when we were in Bolivia, uh, we were, um, I was pastoring a church there for the summer. And I remember this one church, I, was, I had my video camera, and there was a wedding. And this bride appeared up behind uh, this, these trees, and then was going towards the church, and I didn't, I couldn't see everything. I just saw her appear, and she walked towards the church, and she had this train, and they were carrying the train, and she kept walking, and the train kept getting longer and longer and longer and longer, and there were like I don't know how many people holding her train of her wedding dress until she went into the church and disappeared and the train just followed her in. It was, it was the longest train I've ever seen on a wedding dress. Is that what you call it, the train of the wedding dress? It was literally a train. Well, the book of Revelation is about a wedding and we are the wedding guest. In fact, we are the guest of honor besides the bridegroom himself. And so I want to continue with you uh, in the study of the book of uh, Revelation, the bridal motif, and particularly we're going to go to the church of Laodicea. So if you would turn with me to uh, Revelation uh, chapter 3, uh, verse 14. So it says, write to the angel of the church in Laodicea. Thus says the amen, the faithful, the true witness, um, the originator of God's creation, the beginning of God's creation. So we have the characterization of Christ here. Christ uh, is being characterized, I believe, as a bridegroom. We get that description from uh, chapter 1. Now, let me give you a little bit of uh, more background into the bridegroom uh, motif, the marriage motif, uh, the bride motif in the book of Revelation, because we are often uh, not aware of what's going on in the book of Revelation. As I said last week, it's a story. It's an apocalyptic narrative, and there's a story going on here. So let, for those of you who were not here last week, let me review the story. But instead of uh, reading it, um, reading what I wrote last week, I will just tell you the story of the book of Revelation directly. So in chapter 1, we have uh, the bridegroom. Now, if you read, if you remember Psalm 45, 
Psalm 45 is a psalm or a um, wedding psalm. And if we go there very quickly, in Psalm 45, we have a warrior. And then this warrior uh, goes into battle. And then at the end of the psalm, there's a wedding. Now, uh, look at Psalm 45, verse 6. And you will see, um, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. Your scepter, your kingdom, is a scepter of justice. You love righteousness and hate wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of joy more than your companions. Okay, so here's, here's the situation. I'm not going to do Psalm 45. That's another message. But I, I just wanted to point this verse out to you. So we've got uh, really in uh, book two of the Psalms, we've got Israel in trouble. Uh, possibly maybe the Assyrian uh, threat. And the Psalms of Korah here, they're calling out to Yahweh, their God, and they're saying, we're in big trouble. Why aren't you answering our prayers? Uh, our enemies are attacking us. And then we get this Psalm, which is a deliverance. It, there's, there's a warrior, there's, there's a uh, king going out to battle as a warrior on a, a horse with his sword. And then he seems to have defeated the enemy and returned his bride. And at the end, we see this wedding. It's, a, it's an incredible psalm. Now, look at what the author of Hebrews says about this in Hebrews chapter 1, if you would turn there. So Hebrews uh, chapter 1, verse 8, he cites Psalm 45, and guess who he says is the bridegroom? It's Christ. He, he uh, associates this psalm with actually uh, Christ himself. So he's comparing the angels here, and he's saying, uh, you know, which of the angels uh, was able to uh, do this? And basically, we have here, Christ is better than the angels. You know, Christ is, is better than uh, Moses. Christ is the greater high priest. Christ brings uh, the better sacrifice. Christ, he is, he is bringing the better covenant. Uh, he's the author and perfecter of our faith. But what he says here in Hebrews uh, 1.8, uh, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever and the scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of justice. You have loved righteousness. You hated lawlessness. This is why God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of joy beyond your companions. And so this wedding, this wedding psalm in Psalm 45 is associated with Christ. It's a messianic psalm. And so when we get to Revelation chapter 1, we get this picture, really, of a bridegroom showing up 
and saying uh, to the seven churches and seven love letters, hold on, I'm coming back. Uh, hold on tightly. Don't go after other suitors. Don't go after other lovers. Hang on, I'm coming back. I'm coming quickly. And when I come back, I will bring my reward with me. As I mentioned last week, uh, the book of Revelation is not a dark book. It's a, it's a light book. It's a, uh, a book of, of uh, rejoicing. It's a, it's a book of a wedding. It's not a book of destruction. If you are the bride of Christ. Okay, that's how we should read the book of Revelation. And so uh, in chapter 1, we've got uh, the bridegroom and the characterization of the bridegroom. Um, and then in chapter 2 and 3, the letters to the seven churches, the seven love letters. And then in chapter 4 and 5, we're taken to, to the throne room of God himself, where there's an earthquake and thunder and lightning. That's a theophany, a Christophany. And so we've, we're, we're taken to the throne room, and we're about to see what's going to happen, and, and authority is given to the Lamb to take back his bride, uh, to restore Israel to its, her rightful place in history, and then uh, to set up his kingdom on earth. And so in chapter 6, uh, we see the... Uh, the four horsemen of the apocalypse. We see the, the seals are broken. And when we get to the sixth seal, there's an earthquake, and there's thunder, and there's lightning, and it's all over. I just finished the book of Revelation. <laughs> so uh, he, Christ comes back and sets up his kingdom. Now, this is how we usually look at the book of Revelation. We usually start... Uh, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, earthquake. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, earthquake. And then one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, earthquake. But that's not quite how it really works out chronologically. Uh, if, you, if you're really careful at your uh, inductive Bible study <laughs> and your observations, it goes like this, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, earthquake, back up, just a little bit, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, earthquake, Christ comes back, the mountains um, fall down, the sky rolls up, the islands flee, it's all over in chapter 6. But you back up just a little bit one more time, and you get the bowls. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, earthquake. Boom. So there's a little bit of recapitulation, and what's happening is we're seeing in a little more detail what's happening in each of the seven uh, plagues. And so we get, uh, just like in a movie, we rewind the film just a little bit to get more of the action of the story. Now, here's what happened in that earthquake. Remember the theophany in chapters 4 and 5? That earthquake is the appearance, the Christophany of Christ on earth where he takes back the kingdom. And when those mountains roll up 
in chapter 6, or, or the sky rolls up and the mountains and the islands flee, it's all over, and the kings of the earth cry out to the rocks to fall on them because the presence of the, the Lamb has appeared. Well, <clears throat> chapter 6, chapter 7, chapter 8, 5 are the, the seven seals. And then the trumpets are rolled out in 8, 6, and we see, as I have just told you, a, a recapitulation going on there. And so we get the seven, uh, the seven trumpets. <clears throat> uh, do you remember uh, right before the seven trumpets, there's silence in the earth uh, for half an hour? Okay. Now, when I was at MacArthur's church, he preached, remember, he preached this passage, uh, a jet tour through the book of Revelation. And he said this joke. So I'll, I'll tell you the joke. It's not my joke, but I'll tell you the joke. He said, do you know why there was silence in heaven for half an hour? He says, because there was no women. Now, it's not my joke. <laughs> but let me tell you the real reason why there's silence in heaven. So do you remember they're marching around the city of Jericho for seven, seven times? And they were silent. And on the seventh time, what did they do? They blew the trumpets and they shouted. You know, we all, we all know that song, right? Uh, and so the walls fell down. Well, this is what's happening in the book of Revelation. Uh, they've got the seven trumpets. And uh, we do this little rewind. And right before God is about to destroy not just the walls of Jericho, but the whole world, uh, that trumpet sounds and that earthquake comes and everything comes crashing down. Okay, so that's uh, the seven trumpets and then we move, <clears throat> we move into the seven bowls. Now, this is a, there's not only is there a bridal motif in the book of Revelation, but there's an exodus motif. And those plagues that we're seeing, those three septets uh, of plagues, are very similar to the plagues on Egypt. And remember that Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and the more uh, plagues that happened, the harder his heart became. He, was, uh, he hardened his own heart, but God also hardened his heart. Uh, he was put into the microwave oven. And so we got to see uh, more quickly what was in his heart. Okay, so... Uh, his heart was hardened, but God just showed us how hard that heart was through those ten plagues. And so we're getting uh, Israel basically in the midst of these plagues, and the plagues are directed toward the enemy, not Israel. And so when we get to the interlude in the trumpets, guess who shows up? in chapters uh, 10 and 11. Two prophets, two generals, with 12,000 men uh, in 12 uh, legions of, of armies. And so remember uh, Elijah? Uh, these two figures are a Moses and Elijah figure. 
Remember Elijah was in the desert? Or excuse me, he was uh, fighting Baal, and he was about to uh, do what Moses had done uh, after the golden calf incident. He was about to bring revival to Israel against Baal worship. And so he defeated the prophets of Baal. And then he ran down to Jezreel and uh, broke a, you know, a, a record and outran the chariot. And then Jezebel, the one who introduced Baal worship, shows up. And remember, there's a Jezebel in the church of Thyatira, a Jezebel figure. And she says, <clears throat> it's all over, Elijah. And Elijah runs for his life. He keeps running south. He has no more energy. He eats angel food cake. And then he goes 40 more days without eating and ends up at the same place Moses was, Mount Sinai. And God didn't show up like he did at Mount Sinai. See, when he showed up the first time with Moses, they had broken the covenant. God was about to destroy them. He was about to start all over with, with Moses. And, and uh, God's, Moses says, uh, look, they're not my people. They're your people. And so he renews the covenant. And God shows up and says, Yahweh, Yahweh. In Exodus 34, 6, Yahweh is gracious and compassionate, long-suffering, full of hesed and emmet, loving kindness and faithfulness. And so God renews the covenant in Exodus 34, 10 and rewrites uh, with his own hand uh, the covenant with Israel. And Moses comes down that mountain with two new covenants representing the renewed relationship with uh, Yahweh, their bridegroom, and Israel, the wife. Elijah goes up that same mountain, but it's silent. In fact, he comes down with judgment, and Elisha is going to finish that judgment as, as well as a new king in Israel and a new uh, king in Syria. And so Elijah is taken up in a uh, chariot of fire. But God is not finished with Elijah. He's bringing him back. And when he brings him back, it's going to be the revival of Israel. He's going to show hesed, loving kindness on Israel, just like he did with Moses when he said, Yahweh is full of hesed, loving kindness. And so he's going to bring Elijah back, according to Malachi 3.1 and 4.5, before the great and terrible day of the Lord, and before the Messiah comes back, Elijah will show up. And what's he going to do? He's going to bring back the, the hearts of the fathers to their children and the children to their fathers. He's going to bring Israel back. And so this is what we see in Revelation uh, chapters 9 and 10, or 10 and 11, uh, with the uh, two witnesses and the 144,000 Evangelists. Remember, Elijah was on the mountain, and he says, I alone am left. And God says, no, no, I've got 7,000 more prophets. This time he's got 144,000 more prophets. And what happens is the wayward bride, which is pictured in the book of Hosea, the, per the, the bride that had no compassion, 
now receives compassion. The bride that was not my people now is my people. The wayward bride repents as a nation. The nation repents. They recognize their, their Messiah at the three and a half year period of the tribulation where the Antichrist shows up. And it's not against Christ. It's instead of Christ. There's another bride. And it's a false bride. And the world falls for this false bride, this Antichrist figure. But Israel repents and recognizes their Messiah. And instead of God pouring his wrath on Israel, he turns and he protects Israel with eagle's wings and he pours his wrath upon the enemies of, man, of, of God and, and Israel. And so what we have here in the book of Revelation is he rescues the wayward bride. And now these plagues uh, are directed towards his enemies. And he seals the 144,000. He seals those who believe in the Lamb, just like in the Passover. Here's our Exodus motif again. So what we have uh, in the Passover, he seals the doorpost. But here he seals the 144,000. Uh, in fact, anybody who is uh, a follower, a bride of the Lamb is protected. The, the plagues are not directed toward believers, but unbelievers. And so we get the trumpets. And then we get the, the bowls. In rapid fire sequence, uh, the bowls are poured out upon the earth. Now with the first judgment, one quarter of the world is destroyed. In the second judgment, another third of the world is destroyed, including the population. So that's almost two billion people that are destroyed in this great tribulation. And so this is the story of the book of Revelation. So Christ comes back three times. Actually, it's just one earthquake, okay? If we read it chronologically, it's three times. If we read it and recapitulate, we come back, he comes back once. And the mountains, again, uh, uh, after the, uh, the bowls, uh, the mountains fall, the islands flee, the sky rolls up, uh, the stars fall out of the sky. This is catastrophic. It doesn't happen three times. It happens once. And so then uh, we march into uh, the millennial kingdom. Those who survive here on earth march into the millennial kingdom and where Christ will reign and rule for a thousand years and the marriage supper of the Lamb occurs. Okay, this is what the book of Revelation is pointing to. Now let's go back to uh, the church of Laodicea. So it's important to read it from this broader perspective. Context, context, context. So Write to the angel of the church in Laodicea. Thus says the Amen, the faithful, the true witness, the, uh, the one from the beginning, the originator of God's creation. So we have Christ as the faithful witness. Okay, he's the Amen. Uh, this comes from Emmet, right? Uh, which is... Uh, faithful, true, the faithful, true witness. We've basically got three synonyms here for Christ's witness 
on earth. He was the perfect witness. Now, the whole book of John is about uh, uh, witness, uh, testimony, and John gives his testimony. John the Baptist gives his testimony. The blind man gives his testimony. But Christ also gives his testimony as the perfect witness. And so we have here um, Christ being the perfect witness, giving the perfect testimony. Uh, so I know your works. Now, again, works or deeds are very important in the book. And they're described by uh, the characterization of Christ and by the church. And so this church is characterized uh, by being uh, lukewarm. So I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. And in case you didn't get that, <clears throat> I wish you were either cold or hot. If you didn't still quite understand, because you are lukewarm and are neither cold nor hot, I will spew you out of my mouth. So, um, if you connect that with the original characterization of Christ as a witness, you are a witness. If you're a Christian, you are a witness. You're either a good witness or you're a bad witness. But you are a witness. You are constantly giving testimony in your life. Whether you're at home or at work or in church or wherever you're at, you are a witness. And he says, I wish you were, you were hot or cold, but not lukewarm. Um, it's better to be a cold witness than to be a lukewarm witness, meaning, look, if you're a Christian, don't tell anybody. <laughs> uh, but it's better to be a hot witness than to be um, cold. Okay? Now, let me put this in the, in the uh, symbolism of a bride. How many brides have you met that show up at their wedding lukewarm? Yeah, I'm here. It's, you know, I'm just, you know, it's just another day. Um, yeah, I don't really care too much about my wedding dress. No, it's the complete opposite, right? They are on fire. They are excited about this day. If you ask anybody, you know, what's, what's the most important day of your life? It's always going to be their wedding day or the day they became a Christian or the day they gave birth to a child, right? Those are monumental days. Uh, so you don't go around finding a bride who's cold or lukewarm. No, they're excited about their wedding day. Um, you know, uh, David and Flora, I'll use you as an example. <laughs> Since you're here today, uh, I went to their wedding. And um, when, when she came down that aisle, she didn't look to the left or to the right. She was totally focused on her bridegroom. And he was exactly the same. There was like nobody in that church but those two people. Amen. 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 <laughs> that is exactly what we're seeing here in the book of Revelation. Um, we are the bride of Christ. There is nothing better in this world but to be in a relationship with Christ. And so... He says, look, um, 
I'm going to spew you out of my mouth. Now, in Leviticus, um, we see this imagery as well in, in Israel's Old Testament history. And he says, I'm going to spew you out of my mouth. And so uh, I think that imagery is coming from the Old Testament. In fact, many of the, uh, the uh, imagery uh, that imageries that we get from the books uh, in chapters 2 to 3 of the seven letters comes from part of uh, Israel's Old Testament history, uh, particularly the garden. So uh, we're getting this garden imagery returning to the beginning where our relationship with Christ was perfect, was pure. Uh, we were naked and unashamed. We were clothed in the righteousness of Christ, the image of God in man. So the image of God in man is, is the moral attributes of God. So we are able to love and we are able to uh, do justice and live righteously and practice truth. That's the image of God in man. They were clothed in that image of God. And then he took from the tree and they were naked and ashamed. And they no longer had the image of God uh, that made them pure and righteous and holy. And so he says here, uh, I will uh, spew you out of my mouth. And you say, I am rich. I have become wealthy. And I need nothing. But you don't realize that you are wretched and pitiful and poor and blind and naked. See, they have the uh, earthly perspective of what is uh, riches and wealth. And he's giving them the heavenly perspective. Now, remember what I said last week. For every desire and temptation on earth, there is an equal and opposite desire and fulfillment in heaven that is far more fulfilling, uh, far more satisfying. It's far more pure and holy and righteous than on earth. So whatever you're experiencing on this earth in temptation, there's an equal and opposite desire and fulfillment in heaven for you right now on earth. Remember, he, when, when man was in the garden and he was alone and there was not found a, a companion for him in the creation, God created the perfect match in heaven for earth. And so whatever you're struggling on earth, whatever temptation, uh, whatever area of your life, whether it's uh, the lust of the eyes, um, the, the lust of the flesh, or the boastful pride of life, God has something for you to fulfill that desire. Remember, Christianity is not about do's and do nots and can'ts and cannots and restrictions. He wants to give you the fruit from the garden to enjoy here on earth, but it's made in heaven. And that's what he's saying here. He says, look, you think you're rich. Uh, you think you're wealthy. Uh, you think that you need nothing. You're self-sufficient. But you don't realize you're wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. So I advise you to buy from me gold refined in the fire. 
so that you may be rich. Uh, white clothes so that you may be dressed and your shameful nakedness not be exposed. An ointment to spread on your eyes so that you may see. And so he gives them the, the heavenly perspective. Uh, this is um, the fruit from heaven. Okay. This is just like uh, last week when I talked about the, the, the fruit from the tree of life. Okay. Versus the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Remember the tree of the knowledge and good and evil. Uh, man was deciding... Uh, from A to Z, what was good and what was evil. He was becoming like God, deciding good and evil. But instead of um, taking from the fruit, which would have fulfilled all his desires and all his wants from the tree of life in the garden, he took from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And so he saw that he was naked and he was ashamed. Uh, you'll, you'll all probably heard the, the, uh, the joke about this man. He went to, uh, he died and went to heaven, and he put all of his gold in two suitcases. And he got to the pearly gates, and Peter says, not, nah, sorry, can't bring anything in. And he, he, he was so persistent that Peter says, okay, open him up. He opened up, pulled out his torch, uh, tested it. It all melted away. He says, Why'd you bring cement? Pavement. We have, we, our pavement is better than the pavement on earth. Right? Our streets of gold in heaven <laughs> have been refined by fire. That's what he's saying here. Uh, buy from me gold refined by fire. Uh, and in the fire, so that you may be rich, and white clothes so that you may be dressed and your shameful nakedness not be exposed. He's saying, uh, buy from me gold refined by fire. And how do you do that? Uh, it's, it's the imputation of Christ. It's the impu imputation of Christ's righteousness where he reclothes us in the beginning into our wedding dress. And remember, uh, it's not just the women, it's the guys. And guys, you will look good in your wedding dress, right? <laughs> so this is the wedding dress he's talking about. We will reclothe ourselves in the righteousness of Christ. And so as many as I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be zealous and repent. See, I, I stand at the door, and I'm knocking. And if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. Now, here's the eating imagery again. Now, all of these promises are fulfilled in Revelation uh, 18 and 19, or 19, 20, 21, and 22. And so what is the fulfillment here of the... Uh, inviting to eat and dine uh, with, with us. If you go to uh, Revelation 19, verse 7, I believe this is the fulfillment of this promise. 
Let us rejoice and be glad and give glory to him because the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has prepared herself. She was given the fine linen, linen to wear bright and pure for the linen represents the righteous acts of the saints. See, this is the invitation. Come and dine with me. Do you remember uh, Christ said uh, in Luke uh, 22, 20, he says, I will not partake of this cup again. This is the new covenant in my blood. I will not partake of this cup again until I come. And so Christ has refrained from partaking of this cup until he comes back and sets up the new covenant. And then he celebrates the marriage supper of the Lamb. And so what we have here is uh, the fulfillment of the promise. Look, I'm knocking at the door. And if you uh, will just open that door, he's not going to open it for you. If you open that door, he will come in and dine with us. So if you're not a Christian, Christ is knocking at that door. And he's saying, I, I want you to be a part of the wedding. I want you to be the bride. And we will come in and sup together. And so the fulfillment here is really in this last chapter. Now notice here, remember Psalm 45. Christ shows up right after this verse on a white horse with a multitude of people dressed in white. And his garment is stained with blood. You see, he's just won back his bride. And he's imputed his righteousness onto her in our white wedding dress. Now, this imagery of the wedding dress, I don't have time to go to Ephesians 5, but this imagery of the wedding dress uh, is in chapter 5 of Ephesians where he says, um, there is no stain or spot, or wrinkle, or any such thing. He's talking about a wedding dress there. Uh, the brides are concerned about the purity of the wedding dress, right? It, it reflects that, that purity in, in the relationship of the, the bride and the groom. Well, Christ has made us white, back as it was in the beginning with this wedding dress. He has purified us. He has made us holy. He wants to restore that relationship that we had with him from the beginning. So he says, uh, he who conquers, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne. We're back to the beginning, back to the original mandate in creation where we were created to reign and rule on earth. Uh, Adam and Eve were king and queen of a mediated kingdom. God was going to reign and rule through them through the image of God in man. And so we're back to the beginning, back to that intimate relationship we had with Christ, uh, back to what marriage here on earth uh, only represents for eternity, our relationship with our bridegroom in heaven. And so he says, uh, I will give him the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. Let anyone who has ears, hear and listen 
to what the Spirit says to the churches. Isn't that an incredible message uh, that we are given in the book of Revelation? It is not about darkness. It is about light. It's the light bright light of Christ who shines on us and imputes. He credits us with righteousness in this wedding dress. Now, there's a, a, a little booklet called uh, My Heart, Christ, Home. I'm sure uh, the older generation knows about that book. The younger generation, maybe not. But it's, it's a book about how a person invites Christ into their life, like he's knocking on the door. And um, it's not just for a Christian. He's, he's, he's knocking, uh, non-Christian, he's knocking on the Christian's door as well, saying, enjoy fully the relationship of the bridegroom. And so he invites him in, and Christ goes through every, every room of his house and has to clean it up. Uh, because um, he's got desires and temptations he's not willing to let go of. And so slowly he gives each room to Christ. Uh, and then eventually he gives him the whole house. This is the relationship uh, that we have with Christ. There's something that's preventing you from giving your life fully to Christ and enjoying the fruit of heaven fully, you need to give it up. Because remember, uh, whatever temptation and desire that this earth is tempting you with, there is a much better equal and opposite desire and fulfillment in heaven. He doesn't want you to stop enjoying life. It's the, it's the opposite. He wants, you to, he wants to give you life fully and enjoy it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you once again for your word that is so powerful. We thank you, Lord, that you are our bridegroom. And blessed are we as we have been invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And Lord, we think about your word, uh, Matthew 22 where there was a wedding and how many refused to come to the wedding. And so you sent out your servants to invite anyone who was in the um, highways and byways and they came to the wedding and that was us. And there was one person, Lord, in that wedding that didn't have a dress on and you cast him out. Lord, you provided the wedding dresses. All he had to do was put it on. Lord, thank you for saving us. Thank you for giving us this wedding gown. And I pray, Lord, if there's anyone here that they would uh, today turn to you. And for those who are already part of the wedding, I pray, Lord, that they would draw to you more clearly and that we would be hot and we would be on fire and passionate for our relationship with you. We thank you in your name. Amen.